the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. At 36 years old, most physicians are just getting up to serious full speed in their medical careers, carving out a niche, perhaps making a name for themselves, and doing what they are passionate about, what they train so hard for, healing patients and making their physical lives better. But at the age of 36, Yale and Stanford University graduate and trained neurosurgeon Dr. Paul Kalanithi His focus in life suddenly shifted from a focus of building a career and building a family to questions about his own mortality, having been diagnosed, unexpectedly so, with lung cancer, stage four lung cancer. Through the process of dealing with this, many questions were raised. One of the issues that Paul has left as a gift for not only his own family, but frankly for all of us, that at one time or another, at some point in life, we'll face questions of our own mortality, is a gift left behind of his experiences, his observations, his feelings, detailed in a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. Joining me now is Dr. Kalanithi's wife, Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, who, by the way, is a clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine. And Dr. Lucy, great to have you on the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, your story reads like one of those amazing love affairs. The two of you, I believe, met uh, when you were first-year medical students back at Yale University, and you followed your lives and careers and marriage to uh, wind up here on the West Coast and finishing up your studies at Stanford University. And by all accounts, this was sort of, um, well, what do we call it, a a fairy book kind of a relationship, wasn't it? Um. Yeah, in my mind, um, uh, I feel so lucky to have been married to Paul. And it's it's funny because you describe that sequence of events. And I look back and, you know, a year ago, three years ago, he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and he was 36. Two years ago, we were having our baby shower. A year ago, he had just died. And now his book is out and it's being translated into almost 40 languages and it's just like the course of things that you just never know what's going to happen in your life and so looking back over those years you know meeting him 13 years ago and then up until now when he's not with us but he's written this book and we have a daughter growing it's um it's really um you know it's life (laughs) 
This book, let's talk about some of his motivations. First off, for the benefit of listeners, put some things in perspective for us. So, as we mentioned, um, he had wrapped up his studies at Stanford University um, and was beginning, literally beginning his career as a neurosurgeon. What led to the diagnosis of stage four lung cancer? So he was diagnosed in May of 2013, and starting around Christmas the year before, he'd started to develop some back pain that was kind of unexplained. And then in between Christmas and the spring of the next year, he started losing weight, um, you know, without really knowing why. And then he started to have night sweats and a cough. And it's funny because we were both doctors, so we were kind of worried about these symptoms. But at the same time, he was working as a um, neurosurgery resident, a chief resident at Stanford. And, you know, he was on his feet for 14 hours a day and doing brain surgery. And, you know, he would skip lunch or eat a Snickers bar for lunch. And so to have some of those aches and to lose a bit of weight when you're working that hard, initially we didn't, we didn't realize what it was. And then finally um, we had the, the diagnosis that he had metastatic cancer and he probably only had a few years to live. And so at that point, the, the book he wrote and the um, task of that time was to try to make sense of, um, as, a, as a young doctor and as a lover of literature who had also studied philosophy, like how you put together all you know intellectually and philosophically about mortality and then facing it in a real and emotional way, um, what do you do with that? And so he wrote this book as a way to make sense of it and to share it with readers. It's interesting because your experience, I think, tracks what most of us would think at that age. Well, this certainly can't be anything serious. I mean, maybe a little right. bit worn out, needs perhaps some some time off, uh, you know, maybe a little bit on the lethargic side because of working such long hours. I mean, this is the experience of every physician, to be sure. And I think no one, even with the both of you, with backgrounds in medicine from very prestigious schools, I would imagine would have thought that this could have been anything more serious severe than just kind of feeling under the weather. Right. It's just so rare. Um, uh, exactly. And then, you know, a, a little while before the diagnosis, we started to um, suspect it. And that was when he, um, you know, uh, really started getting it checked out. And then soon the diagnosis came. Lucy, what was this like for you when the diagnosis came? You're both physicians, so you understand not only all of the terminology, but the ramifications of the terminology. And you're, you're suddenly, you, you have to have felt, at least in those initial moments, like, number one, this can't be happening. And number two, how is this possible? You guys are just getting your careers and, and lives together started. You haven't even begun to, to, to start your own family. And suddenly this diagnosis, it's not just lung cancer, it's stage four lung right. cancer. What was your reaction right. like? Yeah, you're summing it up pretty well. Um, it's It was this really profound and painful moment where um, we had, we Paul got admitted to Stanford Hospital um, to get, you know, expedited workup and, and quick investigation of what was going on. And he went down to the CT scanner and then he was wheeled back into the hospital room and no one was in the room. The two of us were in the room and because he was a physician at Stanford, he went over to the computer and he typed his own name in and he pulled up the CAT scan images. And so he describes this at the beginning of the book, the feeling of looking through those pictures of, you know, 
somebody's organs and seeing cancer throughout the lungs and the bones and knowing it's your own body that you're looking at. And so he's standing there with me, his wife, um, and we just sort of, nobody was giving us the news in like a little kind, gentle dribble. It was like the two of us together looking at with our own eyes and then being doctors, we knew that this was a terminal illness. So it just sort of hit us all, hit us all at once. Um, and then luckily, I think we skipped over the phase of thinking, why me, how could this happen? Um, you know, why us? Because we've seen it happen to so many people, this kind of thing happened to so many people. Um, you know, he was a brain surgeon and so he was familiar with head trauma and aneurysms and tumors. And then the immediate thing we both thought was, you know, now it's our turn. It's our turn to enter into this um, this kind of challenging experience. And what a curiosity that I think we all tend to ask those sorts of questions. Uh, having dealt with this uh, issue of uh, cancer myself in my own life, uh, the initial question of why me, I think, is is very normal, it's very human, but then it maybe even begs a bigger question. Why not me? I mean, it happens. Uh, that's right. So, exactly. Paul, exactly. Paul wrote that in the book and said, yeah, the answer would be, why not me? You know. So w- once you get over the, the initial shock, was there... Did you go through feelings of anger, that, that sense of, of this, this young relationship? You'd known each other uh, barely a decade at that point, that, that all of a sudden this, the love of your life was going to be ripped from you? I mean, certainly the, the seriousness of the fact that the cancer had metastasized was already at stage four at the point of the diagnosis. I mean, you had to have known that the clock was going to be ticking very soon. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, that's right. We didn't feel particularly angry. I think for me, the main emotions I had were, um, you know, painful emotions like sadness and anxiety. Um, and then sort of the the real task, we were really in love. We really knew how much we were going to need each other and wanted to take care of each other. And then, you know, we, we certainly had these um, like real disorientation and a shift in his identity, you know, like you were describing, he, Paul, um, as a young neurosurgeon, had this whole career mapped out in his mind about being a neurosurgeon and a scientist and maybe a writer down the line because he loved literature and writing. But suddenly, with only a few years left, um, your whole identity just changes completely and you, you have to make sense of a whole new world inside of circumstances and I think other people who are facing a serious or terminal illness can relate to that idea um, and so writing ultimately became the, the big purpose for him the way for him to cope and the way for him to communicate and feel connected and uh, purposeful. And there are layers of complexity here because not only is there the sense of, okay, time is suddenly short. We thought we had our whole lives together. Suddenly, there's now a, an expiration date that we can see. So you have to contend with the implications of that on your relationship and outlook on life. And then you, you point out something I think that, that uh, perhaps few of us think about that physicians have to deal with. And that is that you might spend a career, a lifetime uh, caring for patients and you're used to the physician 
patient relationship, uh, you are the one who's giving the the diagnosis or prescribing the treatment, or in your husband Paul's case, uh, you know, performing the surgery on the patient, and suddenly the roles have been significantly switched. He goes from being Dr. Paul, the physician, to patient Paul. And as much as I would imagine, some might say, well, gee, uh, all of the advantages because of his medical training and background, there's things that he will understand and be able to comprehend that, that the un, uh, uninitiated, uh, you know, average patient out there who's, who's, you know, spent no more time in the medical journals than, you know, occasionally happening on WebMD has no clue of what's transpiring. But I would imagine there are ways in which perhaps, Lucy, his background in medicine and the fact that he's suddenly gone from being physician Paul to patient Paul must have had some ups and some downs to it. Yes, that's right. Just as far as experience of being doctors, it was sort of the best and worst thing um, for us because you're exactly right. We knew we knew how to use the medical system and we understood what was happening and we knew the prognosis, which is, you know, really painful but helpful at the same time. It helped us make decisions like whether or not to have a baby. And then I, as his caregiver, knew all the medications and how to use them and what the side effects were. I mean, there were a lot of stresses that many families have that our knowledge helps us um, get around, which I'm really grateful for. And then... Another thing I'm really grateful for is the other thing you just asked about, which is switching from the experience of being a doctor to the experience of being a patient, being on the other side of that relationship. So for both of us as doctors, um, it gave me such a depth of understanding of the degree to which, even if you have the knowledge, um, the the um, existential and um, uh, experiential and care and empathy that all the all that stuff that your doctor provides you, we were so hungry for it, and it just helped really enrich my understanding of how deep and supportive that relationship can be um, if you're lucky. It was um, Paul's dependence on his doctor was much more than I would have expected from a young male neurosurgeon, you know, but he he really was emotionally dependent on his doctor in a way that I thought was really profound and interesting to see and it's helped shape my own own practice as a doctor and understanding of that relationship. Dr. Lucy Kalanithi with us today. We're talking about a new book just newly released by Random House called When Breath Becomes Air. It is a New York Times bestseller written by her husband, Dr. Paul Kalanithi. And we're talking about their experiences following the diagnosis at the age of 36 of stage four lung cancer. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Craig Roberts along with a very special guest today. She is Dr. Lucy Colonithi. Her husband, Paul, the author of a new book called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. This is a New York Times best-selling book that details the observations and life experiences and in many ways, I think, sets down a legacy by her husband, Dr. Paul Colonithi, as he was diagnosed with stage four terminal lung cancer at the very young age of 36 and, and, and very new into his career as a physician. Let's talk about his decision to start journaling and, and begin compiling what eventually would become 
when breath becomes air. You mentioned about his his background and love for literature. Uh, was this one of those bucket list types of things, Lucy, where he he had a book in him that had to come out, or was there was there more to it than this? Was it in part maybe coping with the day to day experience of going through chemotherapy and all that attends to a stage four? Um, cancer diagnosis along with wanting to I, I would imagine leave a legacy behind for you and eventually your daughter um, yes exactly all of those things it's wild because if you asked him when he was a teenager what he'd be when he grow up he definitely would have said I'm going to be a writer and then he surprised himself by going into medicine he studied literature and philosophy and then decided to come into medicine because he was so interested in the question of what makes us human and how do we make sense of building meaning in our lives despite the fact that we will all die and so he was trying to get at that big question by um, studying literature and then ultimately becoming a neurosurgeon and thinking about neuroscience Um, and uh, then the writing of the book it was so fortuitous and amazing the way it happened he became he was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer when he was 36 just starting his neurosurgical career and then he wrote a little essay called How Long Have I Got Left that um, he sent it to a friend for comments and it was almost like a little journal essay about coping with uncertainty and making sense of um, you know how I, I know I'm dying but even still I don't know how much time I have left and um, his friend forwarded it straight to the op desk at the New York Times and they published it almost verbatim and Paul had this huge response from it where for a while he was getting an email a minute um, just a real um, positive experience hearing from doctors and patients and ultimately quickly from that essay came a book deal mm. um, uh, and then it was sort of a it was a journal, like you described. He was writing the manuscript to help him cope in real time. Very intimate. He wrote down things that were more intimate than he could say out loud to me. So me reading the manuscript as he was writing, it was actually a really powerful part of what was happening in our marriage as he was ill. And then he knew that it would be a legacy for our daughter. And his real purpose was um, not just a journal or a private document, but um, really helping bring the reader into what it feels like to face mortality um, in a very personal way. And at the same time, he's reflecting back on philosophy and literature and his experiences in medicine. So it's sort of a mix of his whole, um, everything he'd learned to that point, and he's trying to he's trying to give it as a gift or something to share. What's amazing about this is, is you get the sense, perhaps, that he's working through a lot of the big questions that, quite frankly, all of us will eventually have to work through or at least be confronted by. It, it, it might be uh, debatable as to how many people work through it. I, I, I think that perhaps some people work their way through the entirety of life and, and as they begin to face uh, the, the end chapter don't really think through uh, has my life been meaningful and and, and, and how do we make uh, a sense of, of, of meaning and purpose in life, even in the face of things that we cannot control and in some cases are, are very unwelcome, at least early on, and that is death, like in the case of, of Paul, who was facing his mortality in an age probably uh, a third of what is, is normal for most people these days based on longevity tables. And then, too, to leave that 
that experience, those observations, those feelings behind in a in a permanent document that not only would share his own insights into this question of what does all of this mean, but then, too, to leave that behind as a gift for you and for your daughter. As you read through the journal in preparation for bringing this book to publication, were there things that surprised you? Um. Uh, kind of. So, I, as I mentioned, he was writing it, um, sort of a central piece of the last year of his life was the experience of writing the book. And, and I was really helping, you know, we timed his um, chemo around it and we adjusted his medication so he could concentrate or sit for long periods of time. You know, the, the process of um, being ill with cancer, as you know, is, um, isn't easy. And he was trying to write during that. And so, as he was writing, I was reading, you know, what was coming out on the page about his experience. And there are a couple of different things. Like he wrote about a rocky patch we went through in our marriage. He writes about that right at the beginning of the book. And then um, he writes about how we wrestled with the decision of whether we should have a baby despite his illness. And, um, you know, he was writing about these really intimate things. And I thought, you know, should I, should I ask him to tone it down or take them out or whatever and then I was like you know if I were a reader those are the parts I would love I would love the parts that were real and authentic and the book is quite intimate and detailed and raw um, and I think that's partly why people are responding to it sort of unflinching and really honest and um, and it's his story I, I wasn't going to ask him to change his story so it did surprise me how um, uh, sort of intimate the types of intimate things he shared, but I actually think that was a really wise decision and it turned out to be really positive, including for me. Um, you know, it, it is helping me have intimate conversations with other people based on what Paul shared about our experience. Well, in so many ways, it is a gift that many people, quite frankly, Lucy, will never experience. Uh, they will meet, fall in love, build a family, have a relationship, spend a lifetime together. And then once death takes one of the two uh, individuals in that marriage relationship, there are a lot of memories left behind. There are some wonderful photographs. But to have a permanent document uh, that details the thought process and observations and life experiences that that can go on even to serve as a guide for your daughter in years to come is is an incredibly rare and I think precious gift. And the other thing, too, that you talk about in the um, um, the epilogue to this new book, which again for listeners is When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House, uh, written by Dr. Paul Catalani. Uh, for you in, in this process, you talk about much of what you've learned in terms of going through grief what that means, how that nobody can really dictate to you how to grieve or what that process looks like or the timetable. And the other thing that you said that that really struck me, you talk about this notion and you at one point quote C.S. Lewis, that death in and of itself in a relationship is not the end. And so often a lot of people say, well, the, now that my husband is gone, my wife is gone, it's over. And it the reality is it's not it's not the end it's just a different phase of love uh, elaborate on that oh i love that quote so much he um c.s lewis writes that in um a grief observed and he he says exactly that bereavement is not the truncation of married love but one of its regular phases and that i just gasped as i read it because i felt that way i felt after paul died I still love him just the same way I loved him. Even if I get remarried in the future, I will still love Paul forever. You know, he's still, um, you know, part of my family and my life experience. And then the, um, 
the process of shepherding his manuscript for the book When Breath Becomes Air into the real book and then helping Random House choose the cover and writing the epilogue about how Paul died and reflecting on Paul. Those experiences feel they literally make me feel as if Paul and I are still a team, um, still working on this book, and you know, like I'm still doing something to help Paul live out his life. It's really interesting. It's um, I knew I would feel sad and anxious after he died, and I have, but I didn't realize that those same feelings of love and um, commitment would continue just the same, and they have. I wrote a I wrote an essay in the New York Times called "My Marriage Didn't End When I Became a Widow," and it's about it's about that exact idea, and I think. I've had a lot of people tell me that they can relate to that idea about grief. Your your young daughter was too young to, to really perhaps remember much about her father, but as she grows older and goes from being a little girl into a young lady, uh, this this is a book that can serve and guide her well, isn't it? I hope so. It's really my prized possession, and I'm, I'm, I can't wait until she can read it. Um, the takeaway... For for listeners, and we've talked about a lot of the topics here today, Lucy, uh, gone from the shock of a terminal diagnosis at a young age to what it means in terms of the impact on a relationship to trying to think through uh, suddenly facing these questions of eternity at a very early age or a young age and then uh, wrestling with the questions of meaning of life and the legacy that we would hope to leave behind, the impact of our of our presence, so to speak having been here on earth in in terms of the big takeaway if there's any one thing that you would hope the readers can really extract from paul's book what would it be you know the book he's writing it as you know from the perspective of a neurosurgeon and a lover of literature and a terminally ill man and he's talking about facing mortality and the thing he wanted to share is you know as you as you're dying and as you're living um how do you wrestle with your own values and then create a life that's built around those values and that's truly meaningful? Um, uh, you know, and it's, <laughs> I keep being afraid, you know, people will ask me, so what, so what is the meaning of life? And what does When Rescue Comes There say about that? And I think partly it's the struggle to find meaning that is the meaning. Um, and that's, sort of what he gets deep into. Those are ultimately questions, of course, that we can only answer for ourselves. But I I think what's remarkable about this book and both his approach and the effort that you've made in in making his dream as a published author uh, come to fruition and leaving that legacy behind, not just for yourself and your daughter, but for all of us, and that is to also paint a picture. We we often hear, especially at at, uh, eulogies, about how well somebody lived and what a class act that they were in life. And yet it is rare that we get a glimpse into uh, the process of how well somebody can die and what it means to, to die with grace and, and what that picture looks like. That's a part of life that, that, you know, we don't understand a lot about. We spend uh, oftentimes a lot of energy in trying to avoid that and yet learning how to, to make the, the, the final moments of life have as much significance and value and leave behind as much legacy at the end as we do throughout the years on Earth, I think is so incredibly important and what makes this particular book so special and so unique. The book, again, is called When Breath Becomes Air, newly published by Random House. It is the story of Dr. Paul Catalani, and we appreciate, uh, Dr. Lucy, you spending some time with us today to share your story. 
Thank you so much for having me. And again, I'll remind listeners, the book is available to the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it on the website for Dr. Paul Catalani. Let me spell the name for you. It's Paul, P-A-U-L-K-A-L-A-N-I-T-H-I. And if you just Google When Breath Becomes Air, you'll be able to find the website. Our thanks again to Dr. Lucy Kalanithi, Clinical Assistant Professor of Medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, for being with us today on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Turning an important corner in our conversation, you know, it was clear back in 1965 when the Roman Catholic Church officially rejected the idea that Jewish people were responsible in any way for the death of Jesus. Pope Benedict XVI has decided to reiterate the point in a new book, Jesus of Nazareth, Part 2. Many have hailed the move as a groundbreaking step in relations between people of Jewish and Roman Catholic faith, and in fact, for all of Christendom, for that matter. The Pope's announcement comes after painstaking analysis of the Gospel of John and Matthew, as well as texts that cover the hours that preceded Jesus' death. Of course, what's amazing about this story is, when you get down to the core, as to the reason, from a prophetic standpoint, as to why Christ came on earth, and why eventually he was uh, executed on the cross and then rose day again on the third day in fulfillment of scripture is simply because of sin. If you want to look at who is responsible, literally, for nailing Jesus to the cross, take a look there in the rearview mirror if you're driving, or when you get home, look at the mirror. It is you and me. It's everyone. It's mankind. It is our sin uh, that caused Christ to be nailed to the cross, that ultimate sacrifice uh, so that for all mankind, for all time, we might have, by this means, uh, the ability to be reconciled unto the Father. With that amazing message, the, the opportunity before us, as always, to share our faith of Messiah with our Jewish friends. And toward that end, a new book out entitled, A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth. We're joined by the president and CEO of Jewish Voice Ministries International, and of course, the television program Jewish Voice with Jonathan Burnus, broadcast throughout the United States, including here in the San Francisco Bay Area on cable TV. And uh, Rabbi, welcome to the program, and shalom. Shalom to you, Craig. Thanks for having me on today, and love the way you stated that. I, I couldn't agree more. Is that an important step, do you think? I mean, in terms of just, you know, I, I think as Christians, we certainly need to understand who is responsible for Jesus' death. All of us understand, ultimately, it is sin that caused him to be sacrificed on the cross. But then, too, do you see this, uh, Rabbi, as an opportunity to really, in a significant fashion, reach out to uh, our Jewish friends and be able to once again share our faith? Absolutely, Craig. You have to understand that this that this uh, erroneous blame uh, 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 that was cast upon the Jews for killing Jesus, which is absolutely unscriptural, has been the cause uh, or, or has resulted in a 2,000-year legacy of hatred, of anti-Semitism, of atrocities committed in the name of Christ and Christianity against the Jewish people. It's the, the accusation against the Jews for killing the Son of God, for committing deicide, and then the idea that God has irrevocably rejected the Jewish people, and they're now under his judgment, that has been responsible for the Crusades, the, Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, uh, the uh, pogroms of Russia, and even the Holocaust in, in recent times. 
and we have to overcome that legacy as true believers in sharing the truth uh, with the Jewish people, the truth of God's Word, and that is that he, that Jesus laid down his life for us as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world by dying for us and paying the price for your sin and my sin. And that is the gospel message. Spend a moment, if you would, to put all of this in, in perspective for our listeners, uh, a bit about your own story. I'm assuming raised in the, the traditional Orthodox Jewish family? I wasn't raised in an Orthodox Jewish home. Uh, my parents were, uh, my father was brought up Orthodox, but I was raised in a, a traditional Jewish home. Uh, went to synagogue uh, very often on Shabbat, uh, learned uh, Hebrew uh, at Hebrew school from the time that I was uh, a young teenager uh, in preparation, probably started at about age 10 in preparation for my bar mitzvah at age 13, where um, I read from the Torah as a rite of passage for Jewish males. So maybe uh, not the traditional Orthodox family, but certainly very engaged in your faith. I mean, this is a part of, of, of your day-to-day -day life. Yes, this was, while the other kids were going to... Uh, football practice or baseball or just getting to play outside, I was being shipped off to uh, Hebrew school twice a week, <laughs> and then on Sunday, uh, mandatory religious study at the temple, and I was raised with a very, very um, strong sense of identity. I was born Jewish. I was taught that I would die a Jew. I learned about the history of our people, how God had spoken to Abraham and Moses in times of old, and that we were the chosen people, although I, it wasn't uh, clearly um, communicated to me what we were chosen for, what that meant. One teacher told me we were chosen to be persecuted, so I, I wasn't too thrilled about that. But there was a very strong sense of identity uh, and, and being part of... Uh, are responsible for continuation of our people, um, which, which is, is still, I think, very, very strongly in the minds of Jewish people that the survival of the Jewish people is paramount. Even Jews who don't believe in God or are agnostic believe in the importance of preserving their Jewish identity and heritage. And I was raised with that very, very strong uh, sense of purpose as a Jew. Let's pause for a moment. When we come back, I want to pick up the story as to how then, with that strong sense of, of pride and, 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 the, and the goal toward preservation of your Jewish faith, your Jewish heritage, that you make the transition into coming to accept Jesus that we know, Yeshua, as Messiah. Our conversation today with Rabbi Jonathan Burnus, a look at A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our visit with Rabbi Jonathan Burnus. He, by the way, is also the president and CEO of Jewish Voice Ministries International and um, the host of the weekly television program Jewish Voice with Jonathan Burnus. We're talking about not just his new book, A Rabbi Looks at Jesus of Nazareth, but also his, his own tale, um, his own story of coming to the acceptance of Messiah. You know, it's interesting that you, you recount some of the events that have gone on in the world down through the millennia. Um, uh, Rabbi Bernice that have given Jewish people great cause not to accept Jesus as Messiah. But in your case, um, what was it that, that prompted you, uh, no doubt, to at least begin researching 
some of the claims, and I would suspect at some point beginning to see parallels between the story of this man of Nazareth named Jesus and what we see prophetically uh, throughout Scripture of his coming. Craig, it was it was really a, um, a process that took a number of years, uh, and that process began uh, as a, a teenager uh, in high school, uh, and my interaction with an, an assistant wrestling coach who was a born-again Christian and leader in a, in a group called Young Life, and he really made an impact on me because I saw in him uh, things that I uh, had really valued and, and know that I didn't have. For example, he had a sense of purpose. I always uh, believed that there must be something uh, greater in this life, something more than meets the eye. And, and he had a real sense of purpose, of destiny, and that was very attractive for me. He always seemed to be in a good mood and didn't need to uh, drink and, and, uh, and, and party as um, was, was so typical of the people that, that around me and the era that I grew up in. And so I went to some Young Life meetings that he invited me to and heard these stories of this Jesus. And I was intrigued with the person of Jesus uh, back then, uh, this man who could walk on water and heal the sick and even raise the dead. Uh, and, and so I found the person of Jesus was attractive. But I have to say this, that the, the, the um, people that shared the gospel with me back then, uh, and there were numerous people, including this wrestling co- coach, uh, students that were attending the Young Life meetings that had an encounter with God, other Young Life leaders. Uh, it was at that point when they tried to convert me, as I saw it, that I let them know immediately that I was Jewish. And what's very sad, Craig, is that in every case, when I said that I was Jewish, I always got an apology. They always apologized to me. And what they were, in effect, doing was reinforcing my erroneous view that Jesus was not an option for me as a Jew. Uh, and that's sad, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. And, you know, I'm curious, too, because I think a lot of us uh, that, that perhaps don't know much about or never studied or, or, or don't have any close Jewish friends don't understand uh, the, the connection between the culture, the history, the identity at so many levels, and this notion that somehow you're going to betray, uh, you know, your, your roots by, by, you know, giving up your Judaism to become... <gasps> One of those Christians. Absolutely. And I was raised with this mentality, what I call an us and them mentality, that we were Jews and anyone who wasn't a Jew was a Christian or a, or a Gentile. We didn't make any distinction between the two. We didn't distinguish between Catholicism or, or, or uh, Protestant uh, uh, views. Uh, we had our, our rabbis, uh, our scriptures, the Old Testament, what Christians called the Old Testament, our holidays and Christians had uh, their leaders, their scriptures, uh, their God, in fact. Uh, our God was the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I was taught that the God of Christianity was Jesus Christ, who I thought was the son of, of Mr. and Mrs. Christ, who somehow <laughs> had become God. And this, these misconceptions are very, very typical of Jewish people, particularly here in America. And so this, this, this was my upbringing, my heritage, and I don't think Christians understand that, that uh, Jewish people um, 
understand Christianity to be a distinctly different religion, blaming us, of course, for killing their God. And uh, it, it was a complete shock for me to read the New Testament and discover that this wasn't the book of Christ about Christianity, but this, in fact, was about a Jewish man raised in Israel, not in Rome, uh, and that all of his first disciples were all Jews who never converted to Christianity, but discovered that this was the promised Messiah. I, I'm curious toward that end, Rabbi. At what point does the light go on for you? You're thinking, well, surely Jesus Christ must be a Christian, and you come to find out, oh, wait a minute, he's Jewish. I mean, I, I, clearly, as you read through uh, much of, of Scripture, uh, he, his identity comes out very strongly. W when this notion began to dawn on you, what was your initial reaction? Were you shocked? Well, let me back up a little because I am jumping the gun a little bit. So after this this Young Life encounter, which lasted a year, a year and a half, and during that time I heard the gospel quite often and, and was, was had the privilege of participating in a number of, of uh, actual Young Life camps. So it was a very meaningful experience for me, very positive. But I moved on, uh, went on to college, and like most of the uh, young people my age, I got involved in drugs and was just searching for, for uh, meaning in life. Uh, the Bible says that we Jews have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, and that, that means we're searching in all the wrong places, which was my story. Uh, got involved in Hare Krishna for a while, and different cults, and so on, and it was through the, the transformed life of a, of a friend who was uh, a fellow drug user, uh, who really got deeply involved in drugs, and then one day, uh, when I saw her off campus, I knew that something had changed. She looked uh, clean, healthy, she was smiling, and I asked her what happened to her, and she explained to me that Jesus had uh, changed her life, that she had become born again, and uh, that she was completely delivered of drugs, and I found that very intriguing. But of course, my response was, I think, very typical of, of, of many today, uh, that's wonderful for you, but it's not for me. But you know what, Craig? She didn't give up on me. She got her friends praying for me. She uh, called me just about every day asking me about why I was here on this earth and what was going to happen to me after I die. And I'll tell you, it was very intriguing. And although in my mind I, I didn't want to believe what she believed, uh, I didn't want to answer those phone calls, I found myself drawn to these conversations with her. And that finally uh, um, ended in, in attending a Bible study that she invited me to, that I originally said no to, and found myself driving to in the rain on the back of my motorcycle. I really believe that when you have people praying for you, uh, something happens. It, it changes uh, things. I like to say it this way, uh, that... Uh, God respects free will, but he stacks the deck Frank. <laughs> and it was at that Bible study that uh, I prayed a prayer uh, after the study with the Bible study leader, and then to tell you the truth, I went home and tried to forget the whole thing, because I realized then uh, sanity took a hold of me, and although it seemed the right thing to do at the moment, as I reflected on it, I realized I'm Jewish, I'm enjoying my life, this isn't for me. But within days, Craig, I had this newfound desire uh, to read the Bible, and not just the Bible, but the New Testament. And it was then that uh, I, I 
drove all the way back to Rochester, about 100 miles from where I was uh, going to college at the University of Buffalo, and found a Bible that this assistant wrestling coach had given me probably four years earlier and said, someday you may want this. Let's and pause right there if we can, um, uh, Rabbi, and we'll pick up the story right after a brief time out. If you've just joined us, mid-conversation with Rabbi Jonathan Burnus, a look at a rabbi looks at Jesus of Nazareth. We'll get to more of the conversation after this edition of Lifeline continues after this. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 